5, verses 1 to 11 and 27 to 32. Uh, so if you want to open your Bibles there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some at the ends of the pews. And if you don't own a Bible, you can go ahead and take that home with you as a gift from us. So it's Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11 and 27 to 32. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake at Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put on a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out, put out into the deep and let, your nets, and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to the partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now verses 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Thank you, Chad. Happy New Year, everyone. Matt, that couldn't have been a better connection to the sermon that God revealed. Um, serious question. Who started a diet for the New Year? Just Matt, is that it? I think it's common, it's common. Um, just so that we didn't follow the trend, we started one way back last year, December. Um, now here's the thing, my wife and I are different. First of all, for those who don't know me, I'm Brandon. I'm student ministry director, I coordinate our men at the well and uh, our membership and our thrives. So it's nice to meet you. I'm bringing God's word for you this morning. My wife and I are a bit different when it comes down to dieting. Um, she likes variation. She likes the fun of creating something new. If there was a pill to take every single day, I'd do that. I, I want simplicity. Um, because the more variation, the quicker I'm gonna deviate from what I'm supposed to do. It's like, look, I'm supposed to eat healthy, fine. Give me the healthy thing to eat, preferably drink. Um, 
but if I have to stop and make a bunch of stuff, that bacon sure looks good. Let me sprinkle a little bit of that in there and some cheese and broccoli, steak and steak and steak and, uh, and then it gets bad very fast. And what Matt said is that's focus that's typically on us in a new year. Uh, we take that focus and we put it towards the Lord. And as I was looking at this passage, it's a very common passage if you grew up churched or if you've been in Christ for a while. It's about Jesus and his calling of the disciples. And traditionally, where we are today in modern Christianity is a passage that you're very familiar with. You've got to come with some new spin. If there was one pill that I could take every single time, I would take that. And it's meant to be the same on purpose. It's simple. It's simple. I'll explain what I mean by that. The thing about our following Jesus, as we state in our vision, following Jesus together for the good of the world, the thing about in general in modern Christianity is that there are a lot of needs for variation. Tula, this is not a shot at you. There's a lot of needs for variation. A lot of experiences, a lot of Christians have lived and experienced different things, and they write books about them. And what our role is, is to check if it gets whittled back down to the pill or the one kind of supplement that you take, that same simple instruction of what it means to follow Jesus, because there are a lot of diversions, a lot of perversions of what Jesus says, and a lot of subversions about our mission as Christians. A lot of different things give you instructions about how to be a good Christian, and then before you know it, you've diverged into this legalistic mentality of looking like a good Christian because you do good stuff. Some people have gone even far enough to pervert Jesus' words and to therefore rebuke him, calling him racist or misogynist or whatever it is. And then we have some subversions where we take things that are very real, like Jesus' compassion and his call for us to be compassionate. And then, as a result, we end up confusing charity with tolerance. Christian is meant to be charitable, kind, and compassionate. But we aren't called to tolerate everything. No. And then as a result of confusion, you go and you find the books and you read the books and then it's like this book, book, book. It reminds me of like middle of college when professors are helping you out with resumes. Man, I wish there was one right way to write a resume. In engineering school, you have people who are going in the private sector, they're going into government and all this other stuff. So depending on who you're talking to, you come up with a completely different set of instructions on how to write a resume. I'm just, hey, paragraph form. No, no, no. Line by line. No, no, no. Answer these questions. And it's like, look, you know what? McDonald's. <laughs> and we end up experiencing the same thing. Following Jesus is quite beautiful. In fact, when I thought about this passage and what I wanted to call it, I call it the beautiful simplicity of following Christ. It's quite beautiful. 
And based on all the different titles that people give themselves and different beliefs and religiosities that are attributed to Christianity, what it means to be Christian, a little Christ, is actually quite simple. Not to be confused with easy. It's difficult, but it's not complex. It's quite simple. Jesus said that if you are heavy laden and weary, come to me because my yoke is light, my burden is easy. What makes it light and easy? It requires trusting him, period. That's it. It's not Jesus plus. It's not a bunch of other things. It's just trusting him. I like to refer to that as believing loyalty. I think I've said that before. I first heard that from uh, the late Hebrew scholar Michael Heiser. And he calls it believing loyalty because it's that phrase that connects the left side of the Bible and the right side of the Bible. Those who were awaiting the Messiah and those who saw his death on the cross must have believing loyalty, trusting what God did through Christ, or for those in the Old Testament, trusting what he's going to do, and then showing that trust with our lives, our thoughts, and our deeds. To follow Jesus is to have believing loyalty. Trust him with your heart and be loyal to him. Trust what Jesus did and show it through what you do. Simple. This is following Jesus. Um, we're going to be having some great thrives coming up soon. We're going to do discipleship for parents. We're going to talk missions with Ronald. We're also going to talk biblical literacy. Um, and I think that that's going to be extremely edifying for the church. In the heart of biblical literacy, I want to highlight what I'm about to do with this passage. We are not about to read the Gospels and then insert ourselves into the role of the disciple. We're about to read what actually happened. We're going to observe it, and then we're going to draw out its implications for us today. That's what we're going to do. I want you to highlight these things about what it means to trust Jesus. I want us to be able to trust his sovereignty, i.e. his decision-making, his will. Trust his word. Trust his goodness. And trust his grace. Trust his sovereignty. Trust his word. Trust his goodness. And trust his grace. Let's look at the beginning of this. This was a, the, it's a subtle point in the beginning of this passage, but I thought it was very important to highlight. Starting in verse 1 and 2, on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So Jesus is being pushed and shoved around by this crowd, eager to be near him and hear the word of God, it says. They're eager to hear the word of God. And then Jesus gets in this boat because he's trying to create some distance just so he can get a better, you know, sort of planned view, objective view of the whole crew and teach them. But as Chad just read in the rest of the passage, this is the passage where he chooses his disciples. And he didn't choose one from the crowd following him already, eager to hear the word of God. Isn't that interesting? I don't have a profound point about why he did this. But I think the implication is that Jesus makes decisions that we ought to just trust. If, if this were to take place today, 
I know that there'd be questions on, hey, why didn't he choose from these people here? Not only did he not choose from these people here, he chose from the guys who were at work. (laughs) They're not even listening to him. He chose from these guys. Why? I don't know. But I trust his decision. The primary decision that we trust with the Lord is that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, which he, according to the riches of his grace, that he, it says, Paul says in Ephesians, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, making known to us the mystery of his will. This mysterious decision that God made to take dead sinners and make them alive in Christ, to be not only alive, but children, his children. Why? We can trust his decisions thereafter. That's what following Jesus means. Let's look at verse 4, continuing on. Let me, is that on here? No, let's go here. Verse 4, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out to the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. A few things for us to pay attention to in this passage. Um, one, I want us to see that there is a difference between uh, reverence, genuine reverence for the Lord, um, and this transactional expectation that we can all have at some point, uh, where we see God's stuff, we can see what He can do for us. And we know in order to get what we want, we need to be close to him. That's very different from reverence. So first, before I get into that, highlight this. Jesus is done teaching. Then he kind of just turns to the guy whose boat he commandeered. And he says, put down your net. He tells Peter to do the thing he's been doing and saw no fruit from He's been doing it all day. Not only that, Peter even feels free enough to respond that way. Look, we've been doing this all day. So no. No, that's not what he says. But at your word, I'll put down the nets. There's something beautiful about the freedom to address what you've been experiencing, the freedom to address that it's been disappointing, and still do what he says. There's something beautiful about that. And what ends up happening is Peter catches fish that he's never seen before. It ends up sinking their boat almost. And Peter's initial response isn't even, man, thank you. It's the thing he's been wanting all day. That's the only reason they're out there. It's to catch fish. And they haven't done it. 
And Jesus gives him the thing that he's been wanting all along. And Peter's response is fear. And I think this can be lost on us in our society. Sometimes we can read this and be like, ah, you know, the response of the old guard with an antiquated response. And I think it's an accurate one. Just last week, I think it was last week, Matt highlighted a chart from the book, The Gospel-Centered Life, and he highlighted how an accurate reflection of the cross will naturally give you an accurate reflection of yourself and just how small you are compared to the cross. And it works invertedly. If you have a high view of self, you have a very small view of the cross, something simultaneously happens with that. Because when you have an accurate view of God, you have an accurate view of His holiness. If you have an accurate view of His holiness, you have an accurate view of your unworthiness before Him. That's a good response. What we're afraid of in our society now that we are on this side of the cross and we know of God's grace, we know of His love, and sometimes, unfortunately, people will only tell you about His grace and His love. So you might have more of a caricature of God where it's a big head of love and a little just body. But as a result, because of that, we seek to bypass or assuage this feeling of unworthiness before the Lord. And so we come up with our own devices of how to do that. I think the primary device is atheism, if you ask me. Look, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of an omnipotent, omniscient, holy and righteous God, so he doesn't exist. Um, I don't believe in atheism. But uh, another way that we do it is by ignoring the holiness and the righteousness of the Lord, his worthiness of being feared. I think the culmination of that today, what we see is, you know, things like, Jesus is my homeboy. Like, those are actual shirts. That's right, I'm 75. <laughs> or just the more simplistic form that Jesus is my friend. You know, we have, in student ministry, we have D group where some of the students, we go out and we just dive deep into scriptures. We do life together. We talk about it, are honest. And I talked about what's the difference between Jesus being our friend and us being his? What's the difference there? I think this modern way of thinking regarding Jesus being our friend, specifically as a way to try to bypass or circumvent our acknowledgement of his holiness and his righteousness and his completely otherness, it bodes poorly when it comes down to how, uh, showing how we reflect him, or our reflection and our thoughts of him. So it tells us what we think of him. Here's an example. Who, who, who likes being hospitable? Who likes hosting people? Anybody like hosting? Okay, everybody take note whose hands are being raised. <laughs> Go over to their house. I think that that's a gift in the church. It's a beautiful gift in the church. It's one that's, I think, overlooked a gift of people who love to create a space of beauty and love for people to just have a small foretaste of heaven in their home, offering themselves and their generosity of their things to people fills them. Man, what a superpower. What a superpower. Now, imagine someone comes over who you, uh, you invited, 
They come over before you invite them inside. They, they're dashed into the house, kick their shoes off. Uh, they jump upstairs, take a quick shower, and then come outside in the shower in the bathrobe. Uh, they jump into the refrigerator and grab something to eat. And, it, and the whole time they're doing this, you're just so happy that you're so hospitable, man, and you invited them, man. It's so incredible. And, and as a hospitable person who is more generous than most, I'm sure you aren't having a problem with the shower they took, maybe, or uh, the food they ate. Sure, if they wanted it and they asked you, you would offer it to them. I think the thing that's probably lingering in your mind is, what do you think of me? Do you have any respect for the fact that this is my home? Or do you think that little of me to come here and treat it as your home without being offered the opportunity? I think even for the most generous person, you would feel belittled. And it's how we ought to see this when it comes down to Peter's response, which is an accurate one. It resembles Isaiah's response when he's in the divine council in the throne room. And he is like, whoa, I'm the unclean one. I don't belong here. And this is why we ought to trust God's goodness. Because we don't have to be the ones to try to assuage the fear, to ease the fear. Peter has the accurate response by falling to his knees. And Jesus has the good response of saying, don't be afraid. Come take a shower. Come get food out the kitchen. Sometimes we, we move away from a right view of God by trying to bypass the fear we ought to have and the reverence we ought to have toward him. We don't have the proper respect. And it can show in our lives. Understanding our undeserving status as a child before a holy and righteous God, that's simple. It makes sense. If God is holy and righteous and we are not, we don't belong. It's simple. But understanding that he that is holy and righteous became mundane so that the mundane could become holy and righteous. That is you and me in Christ. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. So we don't need to try to relinquish the posture of reverential fear. Our reverence towards God sanctifies us. It sanctifies us. However, if it is indeed true that it is Jesus that calls us friend, then it is also true that Jesus can call those you hate friend. It's important for us to know this. We can trust his decisions and we trust his word as Peter did, and then we can trust his goodness to then remove the fear that we rightfully have standing in his presence. Then we also need to trust his grace for us and those who we don't want to receive it. Verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. First of all, let me real quick, I want to highlight the fact that <laughs> back in the other part of the passage, um, the, Jesus gave 
this incredible catch of fish to all the disciples. Talani pointed this out to me when we were talking about the passage. He gave this incredible catch of fish, the thing that they wanted all, all day long, and then that passage ends with, and they left everything and followed him. They didn't even take it. They didn't even take it with him. Following Jesus is not following him for his stuff. It's focused on him. That's the only way you can be in this life, feel like you're lacking and still worship. Because you have him. You have him. So the Pharisees got mad. The scribes grumbled at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Quick note, um, it's these parts of the passage of, uh, I'm sorry, these parts of the gospel sometimes that are, um, I think, wrongfully attributed to our lack of desire to uh, let people know we're Christians. What do I mean by that? A common thing amongst all of us, more uh, in some than others, but a common thread, especially in modern society, is becoming a Christian meme. Nobody wants to be that. Nobody wants to be that person that everybody makes fun of because we see the jokes. Even Christian comedians only make fun of Christians. It's easy. It's an easy target. And so as a result of that, we do everything we can not to be that person even if it means being light amongst those who are in darkness. And then what we do to justify our hiddenness and our being amongst people who don't know and love the Lord is we say, hey, even Jesus hung out with sinners. It's okay. Yeah. It says he was calling them to repentance, though. The point of this passage is Jesus saying, look, if you come to me and you say, hey, I don't need life, Jesus is going to say, all right, cool. Enjoy. But if you come to me and say, I'm dead inside, Jesus says, I've come to bring life and bring it abundantly. If you don't believe you don't need a physician, I'm not going to force you. That's fine. But only those who know they need a physician. This is what he means by blessed are the poor in spirit. You realize you're spiritually bankrupt. You're blessed because now you go to the one who has the riches and wealth. Our riches don't come from our doing and our striving. It comes from Christ. And so Jesus is here hanging with these sinners because it's sinners that need a savior. Only a sinner that knows they are a sinner will cry out to a savior. How beautiful it is that we have an opportunity to dwell amongst sinners. I'm not telling you to go knocking on doors asking people if they know their savior, Jesus Christ. But I think you know what I mean when you say you get into that moment when you feel like you should say something or address something that's been said and you don't want to. All these different fears come out. And then as a result of it, we got books on top of books on top of books about how to disciple people or profess your faith. And it's too complicated. It's simple. Be a faithful believer. Take advantage of the throne of grace that you have. You, you didn't say something you should have said? Oh, man. Lord, help me next time. Thank you for the grace that I have. And say it next time. There is no uh, equation for the perfect moment. But what we have trust is that the gospel is God's power.
It's God's power. God has used bumbling idiots to transfer millions of people across water standing sideways. Why are you scared to talk? Don't be afraid. But the final point is that Matthew is jacked up. He's a jacked up dude. This is not just, you know, tax collector, tax collector, if you grew up in a church context, you know that's bad, but let me tell you how bad it is. They're traitorous. They could be a part of your own people, and they have joined the oppressors. I mean, that's big today. They've joined the oppressors in stealing money from the people of Israel, duping them to giving up hard-earned money to the great oppressed kingdom, oppressive kingdom. They're serving the bad guys and living well because of it. There is no PR for them to spin it. You know, they don't get on a show afterwards and, and say some nice platitudes. They know what it is. Look, it is what it is, man. You know, I still, but it pays. So everybody knows they're bad. In Jesus' response, I'm going to invite him. And the Pharisees and the scribes get disgusted at this because of something I think that we can definitely relate to. This idea of weaponized religion. Uh, this thing, you know, a lot of people today, because of very real experiences, by the way, but have condemned religion. Meanwhile, religion is just a, a kind of a ritualistic repetitious observance of something or someone. And obviously, religion of Christ is the best. But what ends up happening is that in our idol factories called the heart, we realize that religion does provide an opportunity for me to excel higher above some others, whether practically or ideologically. If I can do all the right things while they really aren't doing all the right things, I'm definitely better than this person especially if in subtle ways I can highlight that they don't do the right things. Uh, what's perpetuating this is the fact that we have those people who belong on the channel 11s and 13s late at night who do these ridiculous things who obviously would never get into heaven. I'd never do something like that. Thus, I'm better than them. And if it's not the channel 11s or whatever channels these news things are on today, then it's our politics. And it's the people who are the bad guys who help to accentuate your righteousness, highlight your good standing before God. There's a difference between being a light that dispels lies and trying to pose as a light that's, you know, deserving of being light because you earned it, because you're so light. And you've always been light. And these people could never be light. The light's been given to us. This is the heart of Jonah. God calls him the Nineveh, the short version, and Jonah doesn't want to go. Why doesn't Jonah want to go? Because Jonah knows that God is gracious and slow to anger 
And I don't want your grace and your compassion and kindness to go towards these evil people. I don't want them. How could you take the grace and loving kindness that you (laughs) so graciously bestowed on me and give it to the people I hate? It's because that's the only grace God gives. He, He only gives grace to those who don't deserve it. This idea of fairness that we have today, it's not an accurate one. It's not an accurate one. (laughs) Heaven will be the most unfair place in the world, in the history of existence. The most fair place will therefore be hell. All who dwell in heaven won't deserve it. All in hell will. God, yes, is truly unfair to the praise of his glory that Christ would come and be the enemy so that we could be children. Paul says in 1 Timothy that God desires all to be saved. That's why we pray for all people. We pray for rulers, those in authority. Do we have a heart about that? Do we have a heart of repentance towards those we hate and who don't want to see the grace of the Lord fall on? We ought to. We should trust His grace fully, not grace toward us, His grace. There are hard people to deal with, man. That's the end of that. But we can trust His grace to fall on them. Is that the heart that we have towards people we, str- we struggle with? Or would we rather just see them cast aside? The person who opposes you, the, I, I, don't, I don't know what's been done. I don't know what's been done. The thing that's afforded to the child of God is no matter what's been done, he's the God of all comfort. Your heart's broken? Well, the Bible says he's near to those people. Are you in anguish and pain? Well, he comforts those in their afflictions so that you, therefore, can become a comfort to other people in their afflictions. It's beautiful. It's simple. The thing is, when we come across that person, that one person, or two, or three, Do you have a heart for them to know that comfort, to know that peace, to know that insight, that clarity, that salvation? If not, then you are like the Pharisees and the scribes. Because Jesus eats with Levi. He accepts his invitation at his table. He accepts the invitation at his table with Levi's other friends. And he loves them by telling them their condition because a Savior has come. And if a Savior has come and there are people in need of Him and we don't tell them their condition, that's the most hateful thing you could do. Believing loyalty. It's accepting Christ. And by accepting Christ, it's trusting Christ. Trusting Him as Savior, yes, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. But it's trusting Him as Lord. Trust His decisions, trust His word, trust His goodness, trust His grace. His words are profitable, they're good for correction, being edified, wisdom, growing into a stature of godliness that He desires for us. Do what He says. Trust Jesus' decisions made with all wisdom and understanding. 
And if you find yourself in a place where you just don't get the decision he made, know that he works all things for the good of those who call, love him and are called according to his purpose. Because <laughs> he loves you. Maintain a healthy posture of reverential fear. You don't have to try to circumvent the fear. Jesus brings joy in the midst of that fear. We have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, which has now opened up a throne of grace that what? We walk where? Confidently. We go to it confidently, not arrogantly. Confidently, knowing that this holy and righteous God in whose presence I don't deserve calls me child. And has given me a spirit by which I call him Father. Confidence. Trust his grace for you and your enemy. The same grace that grants you a seat at his table can grant your enemy one too. Pray they receive one. Let's pray. Father, we read of these things over and over again. Sometimes they become surreal. Sometimes it seems like tradition merely that you came in flesh dwelt among us and called specific people to follow you so that they would then send out a call for the world to follow you. And now here we are in 2024 with a desire to follow you. Father, bring to our eyes the beautiful simplicity of what that is. As we look to you as holy and righteous and we worship you for becoming our Father, Lord, we pray that our lives would resemble the love that we have from you and the trust we have in you. And we pray that those who may revile us because of it, those who have done wrong to us in the past, we pray they would know it too. And in the ways that we fail in doing that, Lord, forgive us and give us strength and endurance and long-suffering to be persistent in it. Help us to follow you trust you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. The reverence we have in Christ is a result of his being Lord over us. His result of his being Lord over us is a result of his having saved us and invited us into the family. That invitation was opened up through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. Sinners, rebels, enemies with bodies that could not inherit the kingdom have been died for by Christ and now will have bodies that mirror the kingdom, glorified bodies. And the hope we have in that is through living lives of trust in him today. We're reminded every single time we take this that Christ's body was broken, that ours would be glorified, and his blood was shed, that we'd be cleansed. If you are a Christian, think on those things every time. Find opportunities for confession if you haven't done so, and be reminded of that reverence we ought to have towards Christ who calls us friend. If you don't know Christ, know that his invitation is to the sinner. It's to the sinner. Know that you are a sinner know that you have a savior and we invite you to trust him let's take and drink together